0: All right, you guys can turn to Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah 44, we're going to continue in Isaiah this morning by looking at the biggest, most frequent sin of the Old Testament. Biggest, most frequent sin. That's what we're going to look at, the sin that the nation of Israel fell to over and over and over again throughout the history of the Old Testament, the sin that led to the exile of both the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah. It's the sin of idolatry. Worshiping idols, that's the the biggest sin bar none that you find anywhere in the Old Testament. The big sin, the most frequent sin there is. It's interesting when you look at the Old Testament in Hebrew, uh, you find that the the Hebrews, idolatry was such a big thing for them that in Hebrew they actually have 10 separate words for the word idol. We have one word, idol. They had 10 words for it in Hebrew because it was such a dominant issue in their lives. They struggled with it so frequently they needed 10 words to describe it. It was their biggest temptation, their biggest failure, their biggest issue. You get a sense of how big an issue this is, how important it is to God by looking at the Ten Commandments, the summary that God gives of, of his law to the nation of Israel. Here's how the Ten Commandments begin. One of the most famous passages in your Bible, Exodus 20, God says, I am the Lord your God, Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. Okay, so that's commandment number one. It's all about idolatry. You shall have no other gods before or literally besides me. No other gods besides me. Okay, but just in case that's not clear enough, God gave a second commandment that says the same thing. It's commandment number two. You shall not make for yourself an idol. Or any likeness of what is in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the water under the earth, you shall not worship them or serve them. You shall not worship idols, you shall not even make idols. God wanted to be very clear about this whole idolatry thing. He was about as clear as he could be in prohibiting it. He took the first two of the Ten Commandments. One fifth of the summary of the whole law is dedicated to this one sin, right there at the beginning big deal to God this issue of idolatry he really could not have been any clearer in his prohibition of idolatry and yet this is the sin commandments number one and two that the nation of Israel will struggle with all through the Old Testament they'll fall to idolatry over and over again even after God warns them even after he disciplines them over and over again they fall to idolatry why is that Why did the nation of Israel have such a hard time kicking the habit of idolatry? Worshiping little idols of wood and metal. It sounds absurd to us. We don't do that. Why did they struggle so much with the temptation to worship idols? Well, to answer that question, we've got to dig a little deeper into what idolatry is all about. So we're going to start with a definition. How do we define this thing that the Bible calls idolatry? I want you to look with me at chapter 44 of Isaiah We're going to begin in verse 12. Isaiah unfolds for us. He reveals to us uh, this process of idolatry in the ancient world. Look with me starting in verse 12. The man shapes iron into a cutting tool and does his work over the coals, fashioning it with hammers and working it with his strong arm. He also gets hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and becomes weary. Another shapes wood. He extends a measuring line. He outlines it with red chalk. He works it with planes and outlines it with a compass and makes it like the form of a man, like the beauty of a man so that it may sit in a house. Surely he cuts cedars for himself and takes a cypress or an oak and raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir and the rain makes it grow. Then it becomes something for a man to burn. So he takes one of them and warms himself. He also makes a fire to bake bread. He also makes a god and worships it. He makes it a graven image and falls down before it. Isaiah is describing in great detail the process that went into making an idol in the ancient world. He describes it in great detail so we get a sense of, of all the effort that goes into making an idol. It's a really complicated process. Lots of time and skill that goes into making an idol. He actually describes it in reverse order. It begins actually at the end of the passage. You go and plant the right kind of tree, this fir tree. You, you plant and you cultivate the right kind of tree so that you grow the right kind of wood. Then a carpenter goes and he, he harvests that wood and he takes a piece of that special wood and he, he outlines it in the shape of a man or something from creation and carves it with great skill and great dedication. And then he turns it over to the blacksmith who who plates it in precious metals, often bronze, and decorates it and makes it ornate. There was a great skill that went into making idols in the ancient world. Here's a few of them to give you a sense. Here's a couple of the idols of the nation of Egypt. These are actually made out of of stone, out of obsidian. You've got a a human figure there at the top. You've got a bull on the bottom. Uh, The Babylonians actually combined these images. the, The God, The idols that they made were actually a combination of a human figure with a horse and wings. Those were their idols. Uh, And then here is actually the most famous uh, idol you come across in your Old Testament. This is Baal, made out of bronze, the Canaanite god of thunder, who would end up becoming gods of the Roman and Greek pantheon as well. All of these idols were made with great skill. They're among the most beautiful and lasting things we have from the ancient world. The ancients invested great wealth, great time, great effort into making these little statues. Why did they do that? Why did they pour such effort into these things? Because they believed if you took the right materials and you practiced the right craftsmanship and then you did the right rituals, you could coax a god to come live in your idol. That's what idolatry is all about. Idols are little houses for the gods. It's a residence for a god. If you do it the right way with great effort, with great skill, investing in it, great wealth, you could lure a god to live in your idol. And and that was a a fortunate thing because then your idol sits in your house. You can communicate with your god. You can please your god. And and hopefully, as a result, you can receive from your god the, the things that you want in life, the things that you need in life. And you please your God, your idol, by making sacrifices to it. So they would pour out wine to their idol. They would put out food for their idol. They would sacrifice bulls and goats to their idol. They would give money to their idol's temple. Uh, And if you really wanted to get the attention of your idol, you'd do what so many people in the ancient world did. You would go kill one of your children as a sacrifice to your idolatrous God. There was no limit to what the ancients would sacrifice in order to please their gods and get what they want. That's how idolatry works. You sacrifice to please your God so that hopefully you'll get what you want. Now, they had a problem. In the ancient world, most people practiced pantheism. That's the belief that there are countless gods in everything. There are gods everywhere, in every place, and and there's different gods of different geographic regions. Each nation has its own god, each city, each town has its own gods, and and there's different gods that rule over different realms of life. There's gods for war, there's gods for wealth, there's gods for health, there's gods for weather, and for crops, and for sex, and for fertility, for everything there's a god. And so if you wanted to live a fully blessed life in the ancient world, you needed to worship many gods. That's how idolatry works. You worship many gods so that you can get all the things that you wanted. And that's where Israel really struggled. The nation of Israel never had a problem with worshiping Yahweh, the God of the Bible. They were fine worshiping the God of the Bible. They just didn't want to worship only the God of the Bible. They, they were tempted by the allure of pantheism. It was hard for them to believe that one God, this one God named Yahweh, could take care of all of their needs, could provide for all of their desires. They had a hard time believing that, and so they turned to the other gods of the other nations. They still worshipped Yahweh, but they worshipped all the other gods too. I, I hope that's helpful as we think about idolatry. If you worship the God of the Bible plus anything else, you are an idolater. You don't have to stop worshiping God. If you add anything to God in your worship, you are committing idolatry. That's what the nation of Israel did throughout their existence. They worshiped Yahweh plus the other gods to cover all their bases, to get all that they wanted in life. So if you're an Israelite and you you really want to be wealthy, you want money, well, you're going to worship Yahweh plus Marduk, the, the god of the Babylonians. Babylon was one of the richest cities on the planet. Obviously, their God had provided lots of wealth. So if I want wealth, I'll worship him too. Or if you're an Israelite and you want to be lucky in love, well, you're going to worship Yahweh plus Aphrodite, the queen of heaven, the goddess of love and sexuality. She is all about love. So if you want love in your life, you're going to worship her. You're going to please her. That's how idolatry works. You worship whatever God you need to worship in order to get what you want. That's how idolatry worked. Now, everyone in the ancient world practiced it. We, we should not think of Israel as being unique in that. They were simply doing what everyone else did in the ancient world. Everyone turned to their pantheon of gods, worshipping them in order to get the things that they needed, in order to find security and significance in life. And if we think back to the ancient world, the Middle East 2,500 years ago, it was a really scary place. A lot scarier than it is today. There was constant war. There was constant drought and disease. You were constantly in danger of starvation. It was a world full of insecurity and danger. And so in the midst of that insecurity, you tried to control your reality, your life, by worshiping all these gods. You turned to all these gods to try to meet your needs and give you some sense of security and peace in a scary world. That's what the guy's doing in Isaiah chapter 44. Look with me back at verse 17. Verse 17, the rest of it he makes into a God, his graven image. He falls down before it and worships. He also prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my God. As we look at this idolater in chapter 44, he's not worshiping his idol out of a sense of love. He's not worshiping his idolatrous God because he loves his idolatrous God. He's not worshiping his idol out of a sense of religious devotion. He's worshiping out of a sense of desperation. Deliver me. I'm turning to my idol as my last best hope to gain the security and joy and significance and satisfaction I crave in life. That's how idolatry works. I turn to my idols to try to control my world and provide the things that I need. The security I need and the prosperity I crave. That's idolatry. Now, it's tough for us as a modern audience to read chapter 44 and not think in the back of our minds Wow, what an idiot. This guy actually believes that a a little statue made out of stone or wood is going to deliver him, that it's going to give him the things that he needs, the things that he wants. What adult? How dumb do you have to be to worship a piece of wood thinking it will give you what you want and need and life? We're too intelligent for that, aren't we? We're too smart to fall to idolatry. We're above that, aren't we? Well, let's think about that for a moment. Let's think about what is idolatry really all about? What's really going on in idolatry? Is it really about little statues of metal and wood? Well, no. When you look at what motivates this guy to worship, it's really not about the statue. What is it about? It's about something deeper than that. Look at what God says in the book of Ezekiel. Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts. Idolatry in the ancient world, idolatry at all times, is really not about little statues made out of wood or stone. It's about the human heart. The human heart is the, the seat of our affections, of our devotion. Idolatry is not about little statues. It's about what we care about most, about what we place our trust in, what we worship, what we devote ourselves to. Idolatry is an issue of trust and worship. That leads me to this definition. Here's how I would define idolatry scripturally. Idolatry is when I give anything that is not God, the trust and devotion that belongs to God alone. It's when I give to anything, my affections, my worship, that belongs to God alone. Idolatry is when I seek from anything the things that only God can provide. Uh, I like how how it's put by Thomas Oden. One has a God When a finite value is worshipped and adored and viewed as that without which one cannot receive life joyfully. It's one of the best definitions I've seen. An idol is something that you believe. You can't have joy in life without that. If you have something or someone in your life other than God that you believe is key to your joy is essential for your satisfaction and security in life, then then you are by definition an idolater. You have put something on the same plane as God. You are trusting in something for joy, for significance, for security that only God can provide. That is by definition idolatry. If it's something you already have or someone you're already in relationship with, then idolatry expresses itself by a fear of letting them go. You can never lose that thing or that person. Because they are key to giving you security and significance and value in life. Or if it's something or someone you don't have, then then idolatry is expressed by the longing for that thing. I must have that thing or that person. If I could only be with them, if I could only have that achievement, then I would be fulfilled. Then I would be satisfied. That's idolatry. Now when we define idolatry like this, that it's giving anything the trust and devotion that belongs to God alone then it's pretty clear we have a lot of idols in modern America. Let me give you just a few. This list is not by any means comprehensive. First, money and possessions. We live in a nation that idolizes money and possessions. Now notice there's nothing inherently bad about money or possessions. It's all a gift from God. It's value neutral. And yet money becomes an idol. Wealth becomes an idol when we begin to pursue it as our priority in life. When I give in to the lie that my money and possessions can give me security, that they can give me joy, that they can give me satisfaction, then I am, by definition, an idolater. It's interesting in Colossians chapter three, Paul talks about greed and he talks about greed, which amounts to idolatry. Greed is whenever I prioritize money. I put it as my priority in life. I choose not to be satisfied with the money I have. I'm going to pursue more money at any cost. That's greed. And Paul says that is idolatry. You've given money the place of God in your life. You've put money as your priority. You've placed your security in your bank account or in the size of your house. That's idolatry. So common idol in America, perhaps one of the most common idols in modern America, money and possessions. Second, love. Love is a really good thing, right? Love of another person, uh, really good thing, but can easily become an idol. When I begin to believe that my life will be significant, that I will be valuable, that I will be satisfied if I could only be with that guy or that girl, then I've made an idol of love. I've given that person the place that only God should have. I have tied my significance. I've tied my value in life to that person, to being in in love with that person. Love has become an idol. Really good thing can become an idol. Another example, beauty in the body. Here's another common one in modern America. Uh, Our bodies are good. They're actually a gift from God. He's given them to us as a gift, yet so easily our bodies can become idols. When when we obsess over our beauty, when we obsess over our physical appearance, then we have made an idol of our bodies. This is the guy who spends excessive time in the gym trying to perfect how he looks. This is the girl who spends excessive amounts of money on clothes or makeup or plastic surgery, whatever it takes to make herself look good. This is the person who pursues dieting to dangerous extremes like anorexia or bulimia. They have made beauty in their body their idol. Now, let me be really clear. There is nothing bad about trying to look attractive. We all do it. I, I did it this morning. I hope I look okay. It's, it's normal to want to look attractive. That's a good thing. The problem is when it becomes our obsession. When I attach my value as a person with how I look, then I have made an idol of my body. I've made an idol of beauty. One of the most common idols in modern America. Here's another. Fame and prestige. I, I think it's ironic that the Fox Network chose as a name for its talent show, um, American Idol. (laughs) Could not be spiritually more appropriate a name. Because what is that show all about? The idolization of fame. These people will do whatever it takes. They will devote themselves to the goal of being famous. We idolize fame and celebrity in America today. It's one of our idols. Another one. Education and intelligence. This one is a little convicting in this town. (laughs) We live in a university town. Most of you are here to pursue education and intelligence. That's why you live in College Station. Uh, These are good things, education and intelligence. Hopefully you are all educated and intelligent. And yet so easily, especially in a town like this, they can become a source of idolatry. When my significance as a person, when my security in who I am is tied to my education or my intelligence, then I've made an idol of it. This has been a big struggle for me. I said a couple weeks ago, when I first came to a and I was actually really disappointed because I had always wanted to go to Rice. The reason I'd always wanted to go to Rice is because I made an idol of this one. I made an idol of my education. When I was growing up, uh, good looks, athletic talent, and girlfriends were off the table for me. None of those were were an option for me. And so I I looked somewhere, where can I find something to make myself valuable? Good grades. I I could do that. And so I made a God of good grades. That was my drug of choice. That's how I felt good about myself. I, I idolized good grades. I poured myself into my studies, not out of a desire to glorify God, but out of a desire to make myself feel good. I had turned my education into an idol. It so easily does turn into an idol, especially in a town like this. Another one, career. Career, it's, it's a good thing. Career is not a bad thing, but it so easily becomes an idol when we begin to attach our identity to our career. When someone wants to get to know you, if the first thing you say about yourself is your career, is that, is that your identity? Is that who you are? Have you made an idol of your career? Have you identified yourself with what you do? Have you let it become an idol? Millions of American men and women bow before the idol of career. They'll sacrifice their family, their health, their time with the Lord, anything for this idol. Very common idol in America. Another one, hobbies. Sports, crafts, music, art, uh, hunting, fishing, all of these things that are good, that are pleasurable distractions, they can become idols. When we orient our lives around them. Uh, This is the guy who dreams all week about playing golf on Saturday. This is the, the woman who spends all of her free time devoted to her craft. This is the guy who orients his life around hunting season. This is the woman who identifies herself, finds her value through her music and her art. All of those things are good, but when they become the center of your life, when they become key to your satisfaction, your joy, your meaning in life, then you've made an idol out of that hobby. Very common. Political and social causes. When my political cause, when my social cause becomes my key to making the world a better place, when I place all of my hopes in that political cause or that social cause, then it's become an idol. I have allowed a political or social cause to take the place of God who is the only hope for making the world a better place. Now that doesn't mean that politics or social causes are bad, but when they take the place of God in our affections and in our devotion, then they become an idol. Another one, ministry. This is a surprising one. If you would think anything in our lives is immune to the temptation of idolatry, you'd think it's ministry. It's serving God after all. How can that be bad? I ask any of us who have been in ministry for a while, there is a day that all of us come to when we look at ourselves in the mirror and realize we have made a God of our ministries. That we're no longer doing ministry to glorify God, we're doing it so that we feel valuable, so that we feel important, so that we feel significant to you. It's become an idol. Ministry so easily becomes an idol when we're not doing it for the glory of God, we're doing it for the glory of us. Very common idol. Finally, I, I've probably stepped on a lot of toes in case I haven't stepped on your toe. Here's one last one. <laughs> Steps on pretty much every toe in the room, family. The family, I think this is one of the most common idols in evangelical Christian America. We know the family is an important thing. The Bible is very clear about that. God thinks a family is extremely important, but it's not the most important thing in my life. God is. God is more important than my family. And yet so many Christian Americans are putting their families as their top priority in life. Life is all about my family. It's all about meeting the needs and the desires and the wants of my family. That's what dominates my life. Then your family's become your idol. If you care more about pleasing your family than pleasing God, then your family's an idol. If your goal for coming to church is to meet the needs and desires of your family rather than to worship God, then your family's an idol. It's so easily for family To become idols. Now, I think what this is helping us see is that often idols are not bad things. In fact, there's nothing on the board that is an inherently bad thing. Some of these things are, in fact, the best things in life. Often it's the best things that become idols. I like how Timothy Keller puts it in his recent book, Counterfeit Gods. He says it this way. The human heart takes good things like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security, safety and fulfillment. We think that idols are bad things, but that is almost never the case. The greater the good, the more likely we are to expect That it can satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. Anything can serve as a counterfeit God, especially the very best things in life. Good things always make the best idols. The better the thing in your life, the more likely you are to idolize it. The more likely you are to put it at the center of your value, of your significance. Now, we look at this list and we realize we are no better than the guy in chapter 44. We are as prone to idolatry as the ancients were. We struggle with idolatry just like they did. Looking again at Timothy Keller's book, here's how he puts it. Our contemporary society is not fundamentally different from these ancient ones. Each culture is dominated by its own set of idols. Each has its priesthoods, its totems and rituals. Each one has its shrines whether office towers, spas and gyms, studios or stadiums, where sacrifices must be made in order to procure the blessings of the good life and ward off disaster. What are the gods of beauty, power, money and achievement, but these same things that have assumed mythic proportions in our individual lives and in our society? We may not physically kneel before the statue of Aphrodite, But many young women today are driven in depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. We may not actually burn incense to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain more wealth and prestige. In ancient times, the deities were bloodthirsty and hard to appease. They still are today. We are just as prone to idolatry as they were. We are no better than the foolish man in chapter 44 who's kneeling down before a piece of wood. We are idolaters at heart. Idolatry is alive and well in modern America as it has always been. Idolatry will always be a problem for the human race until Christ returns. And Paul tells us why. Romans chapter one, verse 25, he says, for they exchange the truth of God for the lie. And worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Paul is talking about the bent of all human beings. All human beings worship creation rather than the creator by nature. We do it because we are all deceived by the lie of idolatry. I love how Paul puts it. Idolatry is not a lie among many. It is the lie. The first and foremost lie that the human race has fallen to. The lie that says that the things of this world can satisfy me better than God can. That's what idolatry is about. I'm turning to the things of this world for satisfaction rather than to God. That is the lie of the human race. We all fall prey to it. We are all tempted by that lie. We are all tempted towards idolatry. We're no better than the guy in chapter 44. We're just like him. We just worship different idols. Our idolatry looks a little different today, but it's the same thing at heart. And so if all of us struggle with the temptation towards idolatry, if that's an allure to all of us, then let's ask the second question. What happens if we give in? What happens if we choose to worship the things of this world? What happens if we commit idolatry? That's actually the predominant thing that Isaiah wants to tell us about in chapter 44. His big idea is laying out for us in clear terms the devastation that results from idolatry. Whenever you give yourself to idolatry, these are the four things that Isaiah wants you to understand will happen to you. These are the four things that idolatry will bring into your life. Reason number one to avoid idolatry. When you worship idols, you are offending your one and only Savior. Look with me at verse 6. Back at verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God besides me. Who is like me, let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order. From the time that I established the ancient nation, and let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? Or is there any other rock? I know of none. Notice in verse 6 how God multiplies these names, these titles for himself. He says of himself, I am Lord, all with capital letters, that's Yahweh, that's the covenant name of God. I am King of Israel, I am Redeemer, I am Lord of hosts, Yahweh of armies. I am the first and I am the last. All of these names, these titles for God, God is multiplying them together to help us see that there is no one like him. That he is great, that he is above everything else, that he is incomparable. They drive home the point at the end of verse 6... There is no God besides me. He repeats that in verse eight. There's no rock besides me. I am the only God you can count upon. I am the only God who can give you peace, who can give you joy. I'm the only God who can deliver you. That's the the message of the gospel that we preach. The gospel is the good news that there is a God who exists and he is the savior of the whole world. That all human beings are lost in sin. We cannot save ourselves. And so in grace the one true God sent his son Jesus Christ. To live a perfect life. And then die as a sacrifice for our sins. That's how he provided salvation for us. And all we have to do is simply receive that gift. Simply believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. And God gives you salvation freely. He is the one and only source of salvation for the world. And for those of us who have received that salvation, we are forever saved. We will for sure spend eternity with God. And yet every day of our lives, God remains our only source for joy and peace and hope and love and significance. He is the only one who can provide us these things. So what a bad idea to turn our backs on our one source of everything good in life and instead run after our idols. That's what idolatry is. It's the choice to turn your back on the God who can provide everything you need and run after empty idols. That's idolatry. Israel didn't understand that. Israel thought that they could stay good with God. They could stay in his good graces by worshiping him while at the same time worshiping all these idols and covering their bases. But God doesn't play that game. God will be worshipped alone. You are worshipping God alone, or you are not worshipping God at all. You are depending upon God alone for security and significance in life, or you are forfeiting the only source of security and significance you can have. When you choose idolatry, you're choosing to turn your back on the one person in the universe who can actually give you what you need. That's the tragedy of idolatry. It cuts you off from fellowship with the one person who can give you what you really need and really want in life. That's the first reason that idolatry devastates us. Second reason, idolatry makes fools of us. Look at verse 9. Those who fashion a graven image are all of them futile, and their precious things are of no profit. Even their own witnesses fail to see or know so that they will be put to shame. Isaiah wants us to understand the result of idolatry is always shame. Either in this life or the next, the person who worships idols will one day feel ashamed. Now, it's easy for us to think of that uh, when we see this guy in chapter 44. Yeah, he's going to be ashamed because he's worshiping a piece of wood. He looks silly. He looks foolish. And yet, we actually look just as foolish. When we worship wealth, fame, beauty, career, we're just as foolish as he was. I think all of us one day are gonna stand before Jesus and since we've all struggled with idolatry, every one of us is gonna stand before Jesus and we're gonna see how awesome he is. We're gonna see how beautiful and splendid and majestic and glorious Jesus is and then we're gonna remember back to the idols we worship here on earth and we're all gonna feel ashamed. We're gonna feel silly that we worship the things of this world when we could have been worshiping him who is infinitely satisfying. Idolatry makes of us. It always does. Third thing that, I, that Isaiah wants us to understand about the devastation of idolatry. Our idols can never give us what we want. We worship idols because we believe that they can give us the things that we need and the things that we want. And Isaiah wants us to understand your idols can't do that. It's not within their power to give you what you need or what you want. Your idols are always limited by their makers and by their materials. This is a big uh, point of the chapter. Look with me, uh, starting in verse 10. Isaiah says, Who is fashioned to God or casts an idol to no profit? Behold, all his companions will be put to shame, for the craftsmen themselves are mere men. Let them all assemble themselves, let them stand up, let them tremble, let them together be put to shame. Isaiah is saying your idol is limited by its maker. All idols are man-made. Now that's pretty easy to see with the little idol of wood and metal, it was man-made, but so are our idols. We're the ones who print money, we're the ones who define beauty, we're the ones who build careers and families and ministries, we're the ones who invent hobbies and technology and possessions. We make all idols. All idols are man-made. That's their problem. The thing that is made can never rise above the level of the one who made it. So idols are inherently weaker than us. So how foolish is it to depend on the things we've made to give us significance, to give us satisfaction? They depend upon us for existence. How could they possibly give us what we need? Idols are powerless to deliver us, to give us safety and security and significance because we're the ones who made them. They're limited by their makers, They're also limited by their material. Isaiah goes on and talks about in the passage we've already read, but pick it up in verse 16. Half of it he burns in the fire. This is the log that he's cut. He splits the log. Half of it he throws on the fire. Over this half he eats meat and he roasts a roast and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. But the rest of it he makes into a god. His graven image. He falls down before it and worships. He also prays to it and says deliver me for you are my god. These verses drip with irony. The material that he's about to make a god from. He just burned on the fire. It's nothing more than coals and ashes now. And he expects to worship it. He thinks that wood's going to deliver him. There's nothing special about that wood. There's nothing magical about it. There's nothing permanent about it. Half of it's now gone it's ash it's coals so it is with all idols idols are made of the things of this world of this finite decaying world that's what goes into idolatry it does not last it cannot last let me give you just a couple examples from our common idols wealth if the last two years have taught us anything it's that you can't count on wealth even in its safest forms like real estate we thought that would never go down we were wrong can't count on wealth it's finite it's fleeting How about beauty? We in America spend an unconscionable amount of money trying to improve and maintain our beauty, and yet it is futile. Age is stealing beauty from every one of us. There's nothing we can do about that because beauty is fleeting. All of our idols are fleeting. All of our idols are made from the limited materials of this world. They cannot help us. They cannot give you the security, the hope, the peace, the significance that you crave because idols are made by us from the things of this world. They are inherently limited and finite. If you place your faith in your idols, you will be disappointed. You will be actually, verse 11, notice verse 11. If you put your hope in idols, then you should be afraid. You should tremble. Because in your moment of need, your idol's going to let you down. It's not going to come through for you. It can't. Your idol can't provide what you're counting on it to provide. Idols are an empty promise. That's the third reason to avoid idolatry. Fourth reason, because idolatry blinds and enslaves us. Look with me at verse 18. They do not know, nor do they understand. For he has smeared over their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot comprehend. No one recalls, nor is there knowledge or understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire and also have baked bread over its coals. I roast meat and eat it, then I make the rest of it into an abomination. I fall down before a block of wood. He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside and he cannot deliver himself nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Isaiah is telling us the saddest part of idolatry is it makes a slave of you. You become a slave of your idol. It's actually really ironic. Idols don't have the power to deliver us. They don't have the power to keep us secure. They don't have the power to give us significance. They cannot give us joy. They cannot give us hope. Idols have the power to do only one thing make a slave of you. That's the only thing an idol's good for. It makes you a slave. It turns you into a blind, witless slave, just like the guy in chapter 44, who cannot realize, who cannot see the silliness of what he's doing, the hopelessness of what he's doing. Book of Psalms puts it this way, Psalm 115, their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. Those who make them will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. One point of that passage is to say when you worship an idol, you become like it. Just like your idol is blind and mute and deaf, so will you be. Idolatry makes us less human. It makes us less free. It makes us less significant. In fact, idolatry steals everything good from you. It leaves you with nothing more than a mouthful of ash. That's all idolatry does. It makes a blind, witless, mute, deaf slave of you. You are owned by whatever you worship when you worship idols, when you give yourself to the things of this world, when you pursue the things of this world as your ultimate priority in life, it will make a slave of you. It will make you blind and witless, a fool just like the guy in chapter 44. Isaiah wants us to understand when we participate in idolatry, when we give into the temptation to worship, to pursue, to devote ourselves to the things of this world, good things like money and possessions and love and careers and fame and, and family and ministry, all these good things. But when we devote ourselves to them, when we worship them, then we, as a result, cut ourselves off from the strength and joy and peace and hope that God wants to give us. We make fools of ourselves. We we'll, won't end up getting what we hope for. And in the end, We become slaves. We become slaves of whatever we worship. Idolatry is devastating. It devastates anything it touches. It destroys our lives when we worship the things of this world. So idolatry is devastating and every one of us struggles with it. That's what we've concluded this morning. I love how Keller puts it. The human heart is an idol factory. We are all about the business of making idols. That's what the human heart does. We all struggle with idolatry and every time we give in, it devastates us. So that leads us to the third and final question. How do we avoid it? How do we resist this innate temptation to worship and prioritize the things of this world? Let me give you the the two steps that the Bible lays out. Two, Two steps to cure our bent towards idolatry. Step number one, we need to identify our idols. Out of the whole host of idols that our culture worships, what are the particular ones that we each individually worship? What are the ones that we're tempted by? I think the easiest way to figure out what your idols are is to ask yourself a couple questions. Question number one, what are my greatest desires in life other than God? What are the things I most crave, that I most want to have? These are often the content of your daydreams. When your mind just shifts to autopilot, whatever it wanders to, whatever it focuses on, that person, that thing, that's likely your greatest desire. Whatever you must have to be content in life, to be to be significant, to be fulfilled, that, that is probably one of your idols. So that's the first question to ask. What's your greatest desires other than God? Second question, what are your greatest fears in life? What do you most fear losing in life? A person or a thing or, or some status that if you lost that, life wouldn't have meaning for you anymore. Life would be insignificant. It would be unsatisfying if you lost that thing. The answer to either one of these questions is likely what you're going to struggle with worshiping as an idol. So Whatever it is in your life, it's going to help you identify those things that you are tempted to turn into idols. They're probably good things. Your list here probably includes very good things that God wants you to have in your life, but those are going to be your temptations to idolize. And so once you have identified your idols, next step is to confess them to the Lord. Just be honest with him, he already knows. But take it to the Lord and confess, God, I'm wrong in this. I have put this in the place of you. I have devoted myself to this rather than to you. Or even beside you, that's not okay. Nothing can be equal to you. God, please forgive me. Confess it to the Lord and then practice awareness. When you feel your mind spending too much time thinking about that thing or that person, it's time to back off a bit. It's time to go to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm being tempted to prioritize this thing, to make this thing into an idol in my life. Watch out for that. Practice awareness. That's the first step. Identify your idols, confess them to the Lord, practice awareness. Second step, pursue the one true God. That's actually Isaiah's solution to the problem of idolatry. Look at verse 21. This is God speaking in verse 21. He says, "'Remember these things, O Jacob,' And Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. Return to me for I have redeemed you. The point that the Lord is making here is if you want to turn from idols, fix your eyes on me. The cure for idolatry is to fill your mind with God. That's, that's the only sure cure for idolatry. If you fill your mind with the beauty and glory and splendidness of God, then all the idols of this world seem small in comparison. If you will fill your mind with the glory of God, then, then idols will lose their hold on you. Re- remember, most of the things we struggle with idolizing, most of our idols are good things. God doesn't want you to cut them out of your life. God thinks they're good. He's given to you th- them to you as gifts. The solution to idolatry is not to love good things less. He doesn't want you to love your family less. He doesn't want you to love your career less. He wants you to love the best thing more. That's the solution to idolatry. To so grow in your love for God that he fills your affection. He consumes all of your devotion. That means spending time in his word, in prayer, in worship, saturating your life with the glory and majesty of the one true God so that everything in this world seems small in comparison. That's the solution to idolatry. Don't cut out the things of this world. So fill yourself with the one true God that everything in this world takes its proper place. It's all small compared to him. That's how we fix idolatry, by pursuing as first and foremost in life the one true God. Now we're going to do that this morning by celebrating communion together. Communion is our opportunity as a community to remind ourselves of the glory and greatness and grace of the one true God, that he is the only one we need, that he has provided everything we need in life. Now as the men gather and and get ready for communion before they actually pass the elements, I'd like you to take the next minute, I'd like you to just go silently with your eyes closed before the Lord. I want us all to take this time individually to go before the Lord and prayerfully ask him, what are our idols? I want you to go before the Lord. Pray and and ask him to open your eyes to see what the particular idols are that you have been tempted to worship. So let's each go before the Lord now and ask him to identify our idols. Now as the men pass the elements, let's turn before the Lord individually and let's just thank Him that He is a God of such magnificent grace that He would forgive idolaters like us. Go before the Lord and thank Him for His grace. Thank Him that He has provided salvation, joy, peace, hope, security for us. Lord God, we come before you this morning very simply just to worship you, just to praise you, Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you for the great and awesome God that you are. We praise you that you are holy, that you are mighty, that you are all-powerful and all-knowing. And thank you, Lord, for the gracious God that you are, that you, a God who is infinite, above heaven and earth, perfect in every way, would choose to care about us. And not just to care a little bit about us, Lord, but to care so much that you would send your own Son to die for us, to give us hope, to give us salvation. Thank you so much, God, for your grace and mercy to idolaters like us. Father, I pray that for every one of us that you would convict us of our idols, that you would help us to see those things that we are prone to worship. I pray, Father, that you would turn us away from our idolatry, that you would break us of it, Lord, that you would do whatever it takes to grow us in love for you, to grow us in our devotion to you, Lord, so that you would be the very center of our lives. Please, Father, grow us to be people who are wholly devoted to you, who worship you and you alone. Thank you so much for the awesome God that you are. We thank you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.